Welcome everyone to Unsafe Space. I'm your host Carter Laren, and I am joined, as often, almost always, uh, by the lovely Carrie Smith. Carrie, how Hello, you doing? Carter. I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, and I'm excited to talk to our guest today. Um, today we'll be speaking with actress Nikki Klein, uh, who's best known for her role as Callie in the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, which I loved, and I just found out my wife hadn't seen, so she's we're gonna have to go rewatch it. Um, or I'm going to have to rewatch it. Uh, more recently, though, Nikki's been known for her involvement in the Nixium organization, which has been the subject of a lot of headlines. Um, Nixium, as a lot of you know, was the subject of a federal investigation resulting in the incarceration of its leader, uh, Keith Rainier, and actress Allison Mack, among some others. It was also the subject of two unflattering documentaries, uh, one called The Vow on HBO and another called Seduced on Stars. In both presentations, the organization was portrayed as a dangerous cult in which unwitting young women were sexually exploited and branded and that kind of thing. But Nikki Klein disagrees. Uh, she argues that such a characterization of Nixium uh, denies agency to women um, and it grossly misrepresents uh, both Nixium and its leadership. Uh, she's here today to talk about Nixium from her perspective, uh, as well as to discuss criminal justice reform, uh, free speech and how to find truth via open dialogue in this era we call cancel culture. So um, Nikki, oh, you can follow her. One last thing, follow her on Twitter at Nikki Klein and on Locals at NikkiKlein.Locals.com. We'll put links to all that below. Nikki, welcome to Unsafe Space. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Oh, Nikki's muted. Uh-oh. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I'm muted. So I would I like to blame Beverly for that. I forgot. Nikki. No, no, it's, it's okay. totally my fault. I, I am. Uh, I take responsibility for my failures. So that there's my first one on. Uh, there you go. Camera. Opening salvo. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so let's just start with a high level thing, and then we can, you know, let the conversation go wherever it needs to go. But I'm looking at your Twitter pinned tweet. The Nixium narrative is a psyop. Tell us. Yes. Um, well, it's um, I've had an incredible education in the past few years um, around what the power of the media to fabricate and propagate a narrative in such a way that truth becomes irrelevant and um, the humanity of people becomes collateral damage because the agenda of, of media companies, of people who have influence in those media companies and profit from them, have a much higher uh, stake, if you will, in, in kind of their, um, the narratives that get propagated. And then um, the fact that that turned into a federal investigation in my case was again, completely shocking. Like I, I never, I, I haven't had any type of um, experiences with the law beyond fighting the odd speeding ticket, mostly paying them though. And, and I really thought when the investigation started, because there were a number of people propagating, as I said, things that I wholeheartedly believe and in, in many cases have dispositive proof to support the fact that they are untrue. Um, 
I believed that the FBI and that the government would find that they agreed with me. I would, I thought that they would find the truth. I thought that they cared about the truth. I thought that they cared about justice and I was wrong. And so the PSYOP aspect is really just, you know, the fact that the government, the media, um, powerful people, uh, media people, um, outside of mainstream media, and I'll get to, you know, the, the main players and things like that can really control a narrative that destroys people's lives. And that, that has been the case for, for many people who are involved in the Nexium community, whether that was, you know, involved a lot or very peripherally, the, the damage has been so extensive. And, and really the, the pursuit of truth has been completely discarded in my opinion and, and my, in my experience. So that tweet, um, it was funny. I just, I just tweeted that actually, that, that specific phrase thinking um, it was kind of clever. And a journalist actually said, Nikki, can you elaborate on this? And I thought, yeah, actually I can. And I ended up writing, I think a 23 tweet thread about um, what I meant by that. So people can go and read it if they like. So how much of this is like the documentary is largely focused on this, I guess, I don't know, I don't know if it's called the sub organization DOS. Um, and I think a lot of the, at least for me, I don't know if it's the same is true for Carrie, but watching the documentaries, I've seen both of them and the uncomfortable feelings come with the DOS stuff more than the like, Hey, here's people. And it feels like landmark before then. I'm not trying to make a judgment yeah. one way or another, but like I'm from California and like landmark is out here quite a lot. It feels like landmark up until the DOS stuff. And then it, the tone kind of changes a little bit. How was DOS connected to Nixium? And like, are you arguing that for Nixium generally or DOS specifically was not what was portrayed? So I, I would argue both. Um, but I think the conflation of the two is, is one of the most egregious parts of this. Nexium was a company. Well, actually, Nexium was more the name of the greater community. There were several companies that were part of kind of this network. And the main program and company that people were involved with was actually called Executive Success Programs or ESP for short. And I haven't taken Landmark, but my understanding is that the aims were similar. They taught goal setting, um, personal growth, uh, exploring and trying to uncover and transform limiting beliefs, um, leadership and communication skills and uh, executive coaching. So that was um, a program that existed for 15 years and was um, co-founded and developed by Nancy Salzman and Keith Ranieri. And that's how I got introduced to uh, the community and I guess what you want to, what people call Nexium. Uh, DOS was something that was created in 2015. Um, so many, many years later by a handful of women and Keith. And it was completely separate from uh, Nexium or ESP. However, it did have a lot of crossover in terms of people because we were very close friends. And 
a lot of the the practices um, that were taken from you know various different programs and applied either in the same way or or in a little bit of a different way. But it but it still it was its own unique thing. There were people who were part of DOS who knew nothing about Nexium or Keith or or anything. Oh, I didn't realize that. I knew that there were mm-hmm. Nexium people who knew nothing about DOS, but I didn't know the other way around was true. Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. So. I'm, we've had a conversation privately. It's been a while. I'm trying to stretch my mind back to when that is because I am, you know, a little bit about my background and I'm fascinated by cults. I read a lot about them. Um, I watch a lot of cult documentaries. And so I watched both of these docs. I was telling Carter about them. And, and then I found you online, I think after watching the documentaries and I thought, oh, wow, she's, she doesn't agree with what's in the doc. Cause to me watching it was a very clear cut. This is a cult or cult-like. I don't like Keith as portrayed in the documentaries. I think you know that I have. Um, And then I, I, I saw your feed and I saw you weren't agreeing with this narrative that was laid out in the documentaries, but I also found that I like you. You're very intelligent. I agree with you on all these other things. And so I wanted to talk to you because I'm trying to better understand, um, my involvement in what I view as a cult ideology. And, and so my, that's a lot of build up too. So here's, here's my question. You don't, you don't view DOS as a cult. You don't view yourself as having been in a cult. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. How do you define cults and what would you, do you view Scientology as a cult? So because of my own personal experience with the term, I try not to use it. I think that Mm -hmm. it benefits us to define what the bad thing is that a group is doing, because I think that um, the term is often used to kind of cut cut someone off at the knees or or cut an organization um, down in a way that's very vague and nonspecific. And it's easy to find practices or rituals or wardrobe that seem, quote unquote, culty. And I think that's um, that's a generalization and it's objectifying. It, it lacks um, substance of what, what are you really arguing against? Like, okay, these people wear white robes. What's wrong with that? Why do you mm-hmm. have a problem with it? And I think for most people, it's, it's just a problem because it's unfamiliar and they don't understand why. So, you know, I think um, it's, again, it's difficult. I've learned a lot of things about Scientology from my own research, but I don't trust documentaries. And I, you know, I, you've, you've named the, the programs that you've watched that have been about right. Axiom documentaries. I think that's a generous label. Uh, I would call them shows, but okay. we, we can talk about that. Um, yeah. Well, they, they purport to be documentaries at least. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think they, they sell themselves that way, but you know, I guess if you really get down to, um, you know, an organization or group that it uses some type of like coercive control and um, has certain like negative, deceitful uh, agenda. You know, I think I think those exist. Uh, I definitely don't think that was anything I was involved with. Uh, Okay. So the agenda for can we I want to separate Nixium from DOS a little bit because yeah, I, I do separate. see them as as different. I, mm-hmm. Well, actually, Carrie, do you see them as different or do you think 
I want to make sure we're all on the same page. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole. Um, yeah, and actually, the okay. first time we talked, Nikki and I were, I think I told you, I got taken to a landmark forum meeting by accident. I thought I was going to a feminist book club. I and then that story after that. I thought it was so funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was on the phone the whole time because we had an important deal for a client. So I wasn't talking to my friend on the drive there. And long story short, by the time I get off the phone, we're in the hotel banquet area. And there's the lady on stage with the, mi- the Madonna microphone. And I was like, what is happening? But I really thought... I bring that up because I agree with your characterization, Carter. As someone on the outside of both of these things, I didn't end up joining okay. Landmark, but I think Nexium reminds me a little of Landmark and Doss is. Yeah, and okay, so I just so maybe we could mostly put Nexium itself aside, although it has been on, like it's been tainted with. Well, and just to make a, a finer. A finer distinction is again, like Nexium wasn't something that you joined. It certainly wasn't something you had to escape from, as as the podcast uh, says. You know, if you wanted to take courses, just like Landmark or or any other personal growth program or educational model, you uh, pay for them and you go to them. And when you want to stop, you stop paying for them and you stop going. So it, that was the extent of it with executive success programs. That that was it. You could um, go to classes or not. It really wasn't. Um, there was no Nexium membership, if you will. Do you do you feel though that even if we're just talking about Nexium and and Landmark or other, do you feel that there's some amount of of knowledge about um, manipulative language and what is it NLP things like that that get people that kind of push people to continue paying and continue because and and I'm not saying they don't they don't get positive things from it, but. Right. I know there's been some criticism of Keith's partner, Nancy, for example, kind of being this expert in persuasive language. And, and for example, at the landmark, maybe it's totally different next time, but at the landmark thing I was at, there was a lot of pressure to mm-hmm. sign up for that first class. And they had a part where your friend turns to you and starts to tell you like about how much do you believe in yourself? Do you believe in yourself enough to put down this money kind of thing? And, and you're like, oh my gosh. And then you realize it's happening in tons of conversations around the room. Yeah. And then she even offered, I said, no, well, I've got this TV show thing in the works. I'm going out to New York. She even offered to put down the money for me and I could pay her back. And I was like, that's right. a really hard sell. So I can, yeah. I can answer that. I can that? answer that okay. because I, um, I am the type of person who is allergic to sales tactics and, um, the people who starred in the HBO show um, came from a background of uh, having kind of a, a salesy personality. And then um, when they came to ESP, they developed that. There are sales techniques and tools that are that are taught in the curriculum because the, the idea is that let's say you have the best idea or invention in the world. You know, it can solve world hunger or cure cancer or whatever. If you can't sell it, it has no value. And I think the issue most people have with sales is they feel like they're being sold something that they don't need or that it's overpriced or that it's not actually something they want. So what how how ESP approach sales is that the first and most important thing is establishing whether there's a match of values. So like with your friend taking you to that thing, like I, 
first of all, I, I wasn't a salesperson and I never really sold uh, many, like many uh, classes, I guess. Like I, I told people about what I did. If they showed interest, I would tell them more and they could come to an intro. But I never uh, made any extra efforts to go out and sell. Some people did and they made uh, uh, like, again, the people in the in the HBO show made a very extravagant living doing that. But, you know, they sold something that people liked and that they saw value in. And, you know, did they learn persuasion? Were they persuasive? Of course. But I guess then you have to ask, like, what's where's the responsibility of the person to determine whether it's for them or not? It's there. There were no um, there was no like bait and switch. You knew what you were signing up for. Right. I, I just, just can I throw this out? I just I just want to for the record, this yeah. is like not just landmark. It's not just Nixium like everywhere. Like Tony Robbins is well respected. I've been to a Tony Robbins event. He uses everything that he like all this stuff nlp all that stuff mm -hmm. he also uses it for high pressure sales like mm -hmm. that's what he does and you can say right. no like i only went to one event i didn't want to do any more but like a lot of people just really like either they got a lot more value out of it than i did so they were making rational decisions or mm -hmm. they were just weak-minded and persuaded and and they're just hangers on and they'll do that they would have done that with anything whether it's mm -hmm. Tony Robbins or whatever, but we don't people don't run around vilifying Tony Robbins because of high pressure sale mm -hmm. tactics. So there's got to be a difference. Tony Robbins or or like any successful business. I, I think most successful leaders are persuasive. So whether you're um, it, it's about watching a television show or selling it in the first place or I don't know, a relationship. Like yeah. it, that's a sales, <laughs> it's like a, a sales, um, you know, endeavor. You're, you're selling yourself. You want the person to relate a certain way. So I think it's, it's more a question. Is there dishonesty that, that is not good. That is not okay. And it, and it's not okay to, um, I think pressure someone unduly who doesn't express that that's something that they want. And, that is not an experience I ever had. Like I said, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't sell very much. That wasn't what I was interested in. And I never felt like I had to. Well, I think that there's a difference here though, that I, I think I understand why Nixime is painted with the brush it's painted because Tony Robbins, even though I don't agree with him about some stuff or whatever, he has, he has value. He, he brings together some psychological studies and, and research and applies them well and does help people. But I don't question his motives at all. I feel like he genuinely he wants to get rich. He says that very openly, like, yes, I want I want success and I want to help you. And here's here's what I think helps. And this is and this is what he does. And he's very open about it. And I think what happened with the documentaries and the and the DOS stuff was Keith, because he was involved in both people. And then which is maybe why we should talk about DOS for a minute and others mm -hmm. like Keith got painted in this. Suddenly it was like, oh, I don't know if I trust the motives of this person. Right. And therefore that calls into question anything he's doing, which includes all of Nixium. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Sure. And I think the same thing would be true if there was a hate campaign against Tony Robbins. Everyone right. would retroactively uh, try to fit every experience they had with this new narrative 
to make it true and make it make sense. So I think yes. the narrative has been extremely effective in in making Keith into a monster uh, without a lot of very specific allegations. And, you know, I, I think it's it's unfortunate because he created so much value. He created an incredible community of people who were dedicated to trying to figure out what it takes to create a humanitarian civilization, you know, where people take personal responsibility and care about one another and, uh, you know, value compassion over results. And, and really, that's what we're doing. The fact that it's been painted as a criminal enterprise I just can't even tell. It, it, it's very hard to even. Uh, it's surreal, really. Yeah. I think that there's this is part of the reason I'm interested in speaking with you, because I have bought into this narrative of Keith as I think he's a this is just me being totally removed. Never met the yeah. guy, of course, but we make judgments about people all the time based on our own life experiences and um and what, and the stuff that we've read or seen or patterns that we think we see. And in reading some of his, this wasn't even in the docs, but in reading some in the documentaries, but in reading some of his correspondence with some of the women in DOS, I just, I, I put my finger on it. This is a narcissist and whether he's malicious or not, I don't like this guy. I think he's being manipulative with this woman. Mm -hmm. That's the way I viewed mm -hmm. it. Now yeah. I'm also aware I have certain I have certain biases. I mean I I um No, and so, if I had only read those text right. messages, I would have thought the exact same thing. Right. And so I guess I, I, I totally I agree and I understand. I think the reality is no one has um like those specific text messages were incredibly damaging for a number of reasons. One because they painted the woman um who he was corresponding with as like this eternal teenager. Yeah. She was 26, I believe, when those text messages were, you know, they shouldn't have even been allowed in a trial. They, they, they were only there. When she was 18. But yes, some of them from okay. what I remember. But yeah. Yeah. Well, they. I, I just know that they showed a picture of her from, I think, a passport photo from when she was quite young and they never really yeah. clarified, you know, what years were the texts and, and what was going on in the relationship. Right. And I have had the opportunity, which I know other people haven't to read all of the messages. And, and one thing to remember too, is that they were not actually text messages. They were actually taken from a text edit document that can easily be edited, deleted. There were a number of deletions because in other exchanges, there were gaps that just didn't make sense. Like there were uh, responses to questions that weren't there. And I know the woman. Um, yeah. And so I understood I'm the exchanges in a way that I, of course, can't expect anyone else to. And I understood Keith as well and, and how he relates to people when they ask to have a certain type of relationship with him. So it's it's difficult and I don't want to get too much into the the content of that. All I can say is like I to. totally understand how prejudicial yeah, it is and, and also, how bad it seems. Um but there's a lot more to it that I think would help any rational person understand it. I'm sorry I'm, I was butting in. I I, okay. I I just wanted to clarify for you that I also I realize 
I guess the point I was building to with that is even though I've bought into that narrative, I do have these certain biases. And I also know nobody is wholly good or evil. And when I look at those, I reread those messages before we talked today because I wanted to see if I still had the same opinion of them. And I also see, in my biased opinion, I think she's manipulative in her own way. And um, sometimes you have people with personal, different kinds of personality disorders that just feed off each other in a really just unhealthy way. And I, that's what I think is happening in some of, in that relationship, being someone totally uninvolved who's just reading these these things that were in a text edit document. Right. document. So the point is, how much how much of this narrative that's constructed about him that you disagree with, how much of it is as a result of us always wanting to have people fit neatly into these boxes of good guy, bad Mm. guy, that kind of narrative, because you look at, look at someone like, I don't know. I've been, I've been talking with uh, my husband about, about satirical songs. And one of the song ideas we were talking about is that the Alexander Solzhenitsyn quote about how the line dividing good and evil runs down the heart of every man. And, and we were talking about, you know, take look at someone like Martin Luther King Jr., who we think of as a good guy and who I think made the world a better place. And I think most would agree with that. And I think he made the world a better place. But he also was a misogynist and cheated on his wife. And so when you're looking at these people just in in isolation, like sometimes when I look at that and I think he I think I think he's manipulative. I want to think of him as a bad guy. But did he also help people with this program? Yes. I mean, you're saying he helped you. So yeah, well, are we I think there comfortable are two, with both things being true? or Right. And I think there are two conversations, and it's important to separate them. One is, um, did he commit criminal conduct? Okay. Right? Uh, is is being a bad boyfriend a crime? Okay. You know, is, yeah. is sending text messages that make people think you're a narcissist, is, is that reason to go to jail for 120 years? So that's, that's one thing that... Um, no one cares about because they're they're too wrapped up in the second conversation, which is what is his intent? And I think that it's so much more comfortable to draw conclusions about a person, especially if they bring things to the surface that are hard to look at. And that's something that Keith did. He brought he provoked he provoked uh, conversation inspired thought in a way that I haven't found exists in in other places in society and and certainly has become less and less so as you're well aware and I think is part of the reason why you have this show which is is I love about what you're doing is that you want to be able to for people to have conversations about things that might be taboo or uncomfortable or even to explore ideas like I am totally open to changing my beliefs about things. That doesn't mean I'm not going to stand strongly in the beliefs that I have so long as I have them. But if I'm presented with reasonable data that supports something different than what I've thought, then great. Like I, I, I will change my mind. I'm not, you know, I'm not stubborn like that. I, but you know, I need to be convinced it, it can't just be pressured by the mainstream media, which has been difficult. Now, in terms of Keith, like, it's just very difficult to know a person's psychology. And I I wish that a psychologist would go would evaluate him, because 
all these people have thrown around, thrown around clinical diagnoses based on a very biased, you know, horror music soundtrack show yeah. with people fake crying and saying all the, you know, saying things that are antithetical to what they said for 15 years, which in my opinion should be your first, uh, kind of, you know, should it inspire skepticism? Like, how is it that a person presented themselves and, and benefited and, and profited and promoted something for 15 years and then on a dime are saying they're saying the opposite? Either were they lying then? Are they lying now? What, what does it take to do that? And, and how do you how do you trust what they're saying? So. You know, I, I think it would be great if, if Keith got a, a valid psychological analysis to know whether these kind of more derogatory personality disorder terms are, are, are thrown around. Um, because, yeah, I just I just don't think you can judge someone based on a, a, a kind of cobbled together narrative with an agenda. Um, yeah. Can we get... Can- so I just want to I'm really glad you brought up the distinction between legality and morality. And mm-hmm. I just want to share my reaction to I don't remember which documentary it was. I'm using the word documentary because that's the thing. <laughs> I, I understand that you disagree with that but, <laughs> characterization. But um, no worries. Uh, you know, there was one of them. There was this this feeling they were going over the DOS stuff and my my evaluation as well as my emotions. They were, I think, in line with each other uh, integrated. Uh, I was. I was like, this is a bad idea. It's harmful. It's this wrong. They should not be doing this. You should never give yourself over and be a slave to anyone. I can I can argue objectively why this is a stupid idea. It's not good. This is predatory and bad. But I think completely legal. So we, we got to this point where I was like, I got agitated. The, the documentary got me agitated. But then by the end, they were advocating for all these legal, well, the legal system needs to be stronger to do this and that. And that horrified me even more than some group of people in Clifton Park, New York, doing whatever the hell sexually that I, I thought was weird or whatever. Like it, it, it was both, both bothered me. And what I, what I think maybe would be nice to tease out for people is what was, what, what are the legal charges here? And What's the veracity, in your opinion, what's the veracity of those as compared to were there things that were outside of sexual norms or other norms that people think are weird or creepy or manipulative or whatever that were voluntarily done by people with agency that might just freak you out but aren't really illegal? Mm -hmm. So from my investigation, which has been pretty rigorous, I have my own personal experience having been one of the founders of DOS, which is obviously raises my heart rate a little bit to say, considering what people have gone to prison for. And uh, I can explain kind of the differences and why I think I'm able to be here speaking to you where where some of them cannot. But the charges were uh, sex trafficking, uh, forced labor, racketeering, conspiracy, and then there were a number, I think, of predicate acts under that. And I don't think many people know what the government used to try to support 
those charges. I think if people knew, they should at least be outraged. The forced labor charge, for example, was a result of a woman, a 29-year-old actress, transcribing a video for five hours for a dear friend's memorial service. Now, she worked at a cocktail bar and had stayed up you know, working, and she'd left the transcription that she said she would do and offered to do uh, until the last minute. And so she stayed up all night doing it. Um, and then she also, as part of a DOS assignment, read 55 articles and filled out a Google form uh, rating them and kind of saying like what she thought of them, what audiences she thought they would appeal to. Um, I've gone back and read her responses. For most of them, she said she loved it. She had positive feedback. So this was not some like, um, I don't know, traumatic or, or like they're very interesting articles. And I, I actually plan to publish them because I think the world should read them. They're, they're really cool. They're articles that, that Keith wrote and he wanted them published as actually his partner of 30 years who passed away, um, who the m memorial service was for, had really wanted uh, those articles to be published. So that's around the same time that we were wanting to get feedback on them. Uh, yeah, so that so, was so sex trafficking 20 years, and forced labor 20 years in prison. Those are the biggies, exactly. Right. Everything like conspiracy, we can throw out racketeering and conspiracy because they're add-on yeah. charges that you can yeah. charge Carrie and I with conspiracy if you wanted to, but we need yeah. to have done something. So well, we're conspiring, aren't we? Right. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Careful. So, but, okay, but 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 sex trafficking sounds bad. I, even though I'm actually bad. not against sex it, work at it, all morally, like legally, sure. I don't think. But it sounds bad. It sounds like you're taking kids from Thailand. Um, yes. That's what it sounds like. Right. And that's what and it is. And that's bad. what it was. That's what sex trafficking is designed to. Uh, that's who it's designed to protect. And I, um, you know, there was a time when I thought I was going to be charged and I did a lot of research and I worked with a lawyer and he gave me a number of cases to look at that had the similar charges. And I was a mess reading these things like these are women who come from nothing, they're drugged, they're beaten, they don't speak the language, they're, um, you know, f physically and sexually abused in ways that bend the imagination. And it's horrifying. And, uh, you know, that that needs to be protected. The fact that the government put the amount of resources that it did into convicting a suburban, you know, a gr group of people who were engaging in somewhat edgy, maybe outside the norm practices consensually, and there was no physical harm. There was no reason to believe that the people involved didn't want to be involved. Uh, the, the fact that they're using their resources and that the media is focusing on this. Meanwhile, probably, you know, down the street, there's some sweatshop where a bunch of, of women are being terrorized and abused and no one cares. And that is something that I feel very strongly about in terms of how the victim narratives are being abused, you know, of how people are using their so-called victimhood for attention, for clout, for 
uh, profit. Um, you know, the reason I don't call, um, namely the seduced show a documentary is because the, the subjects of it were producers on it and they profited tremendously. It was scripted. And one thing you should know between India and Allison, you know, they're painted very differently in the media and in the court. They engaged in the exact same behavior. They both had slaves in DOS. They, that doesn't they, come across in the documentary or the For show. a reason. I believe right. that the whole reason that was even made was to make India out. in And, and India is a 30-year-old woman. She was, I guess, 26 at the time. But her mother refers to her as a child mm. on purpose. So let me, let's let, just clarify. Was there force or fraud involved that – was there an allegation that – or did the government – credibly argue, I mean, I would assume that they did because people are in jail, but that force or fraud were involved in the sexual activities or that it doesn't really matter what the forced labor was. Was there force involved in making someone write the obit or review articles? Like, is there force or fraud involved in these things? If the thing, the the biggest um, confusion or discrepancy between what the government said and what the narrative purports versus reality is they make it seem like once uh, someone gave collateral to join DOS, then every decision they made was under duress of fearing that collateral was released, which wasn't true and was never the purpose of collateral. And the proof of that is that women who were part of DOS, um, who had given collateral to be part of it and to be on this journey, failed all the time. They refused to do things all the time. No one's collateral was ever released. It was That was not the purpose. Like, you don't, um, you know, like, let's say you join the military you know, like it's not like you make an agreement and you have a contract to uphold your agreement. That doesn't mean that you do every single thing perfectly or that you're not going to have failures or make mistakes. But there's a there's a greater agreement of sticking you know, with it that is involved. And and really, that was the purpose of the collateral. It was this path. It was the mentorship, the relationship with the person that you've given permission to hold you accountable. The crazy thing is that the transcription wasn't even part of DOS. The government said that it was because, oh, my God, she stayed up all night. Like to me, it's so crazy. I uh, I actually started a business after all of this because I needed a job and um in an industry I knew nothing about and had no experience in. And the amount of labor <laughs> I had to do and be on call for 24 seven. And uh, I mean, I just the the entitlement and the absolute absurdity of these charges compared to what people actually did, compared to what the laws are actually designed to combat in our society is just it's it's egregious and it exposes an extreme double standard um, that I think obviously relates to sexism and and I think racism as well, because I don't think if a group of black women had 
cried the same things, that they would have been given the same attention or credibility. I don't know, but uh, I also don't know that that black women would have the same delusion. Uh, you know, my my best friend is black. She was part of DOS. Um, I was actually speaking to her this morning apropos of this interview because she was very much part of the social justice movement. She was going to get her master's in social justice before she discovered ESP. And um, she she just has a different perception of reality. She, she in no way, shape or form. And she actually met with the government when they were trying to find more victims you know, to have as witnesses. And they kept bullying her into saying that she did everything under duress and that she was fearful. And she said, no, I made these choices. I wanted to do this. And they're like, but how could you want that? None of your business. It's not for the government to decide what I do or don't want just because it doesn't feel comfortable to them. So. So one of the, one of the things I wanted to talk about is your perception of how this robs women of agency, like a lot of the conversation Mm -hmm. around this. And there are two questions. I know everybody's who's watching this, who's familiar with the case or who has watched the two documentaries, Mm -hmm. we'll call them, would be asking is what about the physical branding? And also what about the girl who was, or the woman who was in held in the room for two years. Uh, sure. So we can work backwards. Um, so the the woman who decided to stay in a room because she was so stubborn and wouldn't um, do the one thing that she promised to do as part of an agreement with her parents. Um, she had stolen a bunch of money from the organization. Her parents kind of didn't know what to do with her. And they made an agreement with her that um, she would stay in a room until she kind of wrote out an essay acknowledging what she'd done and what she was going to do to fix it. And um, the the bedroom door was not locked. She was essentially served hand and foot her um, meals of her request in her family home. Um, she snuck out and... Uh, you know, essentially was so stubborn and prideful that she stayed there for as long as she did. But the door... So she but, wasn't prevented from leaving. Like no. She could leave if she wanted. No, and she, to the best of my knowledge, she did sneak out when she wanted and she could have left at any time. Um, and and there, she wrote letters upon letters upon letters talking about how she wanted to be different and why it was helping her, but it was all just kind of it seems like a lot of mind games and um, she, she wanted to stay there. Okay. And, and, what oh, about, and then the so, branding. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I mean the, the branding was a, a, a symbol of, of one's commitment in DOS for those who, you know, um, kind of came in and in the beginning stages, we, we had a lot of different ideas. I think this is just an important point to acknowledge that, this was something new and different, obviously, and it was evolving. You know, there was nothing we were doing that we were like, this is always going to be this way and this is the right way. It was something we tried different things. Some didn't work. We got feedback. You know, I would say the biggest failure was um, not vetting people 
uh, deeply enough, whether they really understood the commitment they were making and whether, you know, if they were joining kind of for the right reasons, shall we say. Um, but hindsight is twenty twenty. Everyone who joined knew they were going to get a brand. Uh, if someone didn't want to and that was a deal breaker for them, then they they wouldn't join. And and there were the, people who were invited show, who didn't join. The show kind of portrays it like you don't know what's happening. You joined DOS and one day you end up in a, a, a upstairs in the townhome in Clifton Park and there's a lady with a brand. Right. Um, so I'm very curious how that works, how people end up in situations without getting themselves there. Well, I'm, I, I, you could end up in that situation without knowing that branding was going to happen. Like they right. could say, there's well, that, a birthday party a for you upstairs. Let's no, go. No, no. Like that, you know. Well, that, that's a very <laughs> clear lie. Um, okay. That, so your that contention is they knew. Yes. Everyone knew. Okay. Everyone who joined knew. It was part of the, the process that, um, and, and the brand was something that was very clearly um, communicated as being part of it okay. before joining. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people, a lot of people look at the sexual relationships and the branding, and it just, to them, I think it 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 it's far enough outside their window of normal mm-hmm. that they can't that there must be something. I'm going to use the word evil in quotes. Evil about what's going on because this is this is very outside their norm. Now, <laughs> I'm in San Francisco. A sex cult and some branding is probably like a fun weekend for some people. Like it's there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. there's a lot that, well, no, you know. and I think that to to, <laughs> to Carrie's question about women's agency, the narrative did a terrific job of stripping women of, of it being their their choice. You know, in the language they said, you know, the sex cult where women were branded. You know, right. as if they were held down against their will. And there were some articles that said branded like cattle. So right. the the way that that we did it was no different than a tattoo. It was a very um, precise instrument. Um, the pain only lasted as long as it took to do it, which wasn't very long. And it, it really isn't that big of a deal. It's something that that fades over time. We were actually planning to um, have tattoos over it that signified like our own groups and different things. Um, it, it's not I, I would even hypothesize that branding is going to be as common as tattooing in the not too distant future. You can already get brands at most tattoo shops. So it it's it's something that if if we had had say, a, a better PR <laughs> agency, I think could have been completely understandable. That doesn't mean people would agree. Some people think any type of body modification is mutilation. But I mean, compared to what is socially acceptable for women to do with their bodies, like get boob jobs or permanent makeup or, you know, and and things people do uh, to their bodies to to be a different gender and things like that. I mean, Having a, a small scar somewhere where nobody sees it is really not that big of a deal, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, one of the things from one of the shows that struck me, and I don't, you might not know this, but it it certainly made it feel like it was um, something that what people weren't expecting was there was a husband and wife couple, and he seemed to not have known that she was branded. Like, she didn't know until after. 
And I just thought to myself, that seems really weird. How would how would he find out afterwards? What kind of relationship is that? And how could that it, it made it it lent yeah, credence to this idea that like I was I was held down forcibly and branded. Like that's how you might not know because someone did it to you. Um, but I, I that kind of lent credibility. It it made it feel like, oh, well, maybe she didn't know she was gonna get branded and he didn't know and she just came home branded one day. No, I mean, so DOS was a secret. Um, and there, I know other women who were in DOS who were married and everyone decided to go about sharing it with their significant other differently, depending on the relationship. Some women thought, you know what, it's none of his business. It's my body. Others felt like it was a very important and meaningful decision and they wanted to share with them ahead of time and kind of prepare them. And, and, uh, some women did that. I think it really um, depends on the relationship, but it seems like in that relationship, and it's it's difficult for me to talk about because I have a lot of personal experience and information about the different people, and I don't desire to be dishonorable or, you know, spread gossip. So sure, there are things I could share that would shed light on uh, the circumstances and the dynamics and things like that, that I choose not to. Um, but because they choose to, it, it means that, you know, their, their narrative is, is the one that's heard. Now, I think that, um, I think that it would be understandable if, you know, if I was in a relationship and um, I didn't share, which means that for months, Obviously, that person doesn't see me naked, right? Because the only way to hide that would be um, like that. And uh, then, you know, it becomes exposed because other people are starting to. There was a very coordinated campaign and effort to spread misinformation. And that's something people don't get from watching these shows is how um, specific people were going around and, and actually doing the exact same things they were claiming others were doing, but like getting people to sign NDAs to promise not to share what they were going to find out. And that put people in a very difficult position because then they couldn't go find out from the people who are being gossiped about whether the things are true or not, because they've been sworn to secrecy and the things they're being told are very fear inspiring. And, and so you're stuck with just this terrible feeling, not knowing whether it's true or not, and, and I think a lot of people were put in that position and there was just enough truth, you know, like just enough. Oh, oh, yeah, that person was on a diet. Oh, yeah. Then mm. maybe it is true what, what they're saying. Right. Like, oh, I saw her counter calories in an app. And so it's like, you know, then they extrapolate that all these other things must be true, which is not a logical process. But we are emotional beings and it it feels like it makes sense. And. So I think that what happened is, um, you know, the husband got wind of this and got incredibly angry, you know. I might. Yeah, understandably. And I think a way to um, uh, dissipate the anger at the significant other for doing this could be saying, I didn't choose it. So, you know, I... I can't know what's in anyone else's minds. Um, 
I do think there's a lot more to the story and to people's motivations and what actually went on when cameras were not filming. Because, like, I, I, they present they presented as if, like, all this stuff was just happening and they just happened to have cameras. It, right. it, they're filmmakers and actors. Like, it, it, that that's not that's not what you were seeing. Um, but, you know, it is what it was is. Was there an assault conviction because of the branding or no? no? I just want to clarify. Okay. No, branding was actually not part of the charges at all. Okay. I have a – there's a couple things we do agree on. I agree that documentaries – have points of view. <laughs> it's yeah. rare that I find one that doesn't. Um, and maybe that's not obvious to some people who uh, just, I, it, it wasn't obvious to me when I was younger, even when I worked in entertainment, like I would watch all of Michael Moore's documentaries, which I loved. And I just, I, it wouldn't occur to me that he went in with a point of view. Don't roll your eyes right. at me, Carter. Sorry, <laughs> he's just the most we're, obvious example. We're allowed, to, we're allowed to learn and grow. No, I get I'm it. sorry. I, I'll shut no, up now. I actually loved. Um, I actually used to be really fascinated with cults and documentaries about cults too. Like I would watch all the Jonestown stuff, and yeah. I recently listened to a podcast Amanda Knox did. Um, she did a series on the Jonestown situation and it was really illuminating because it brought in different perspectives that i i didn't know about and that brought a lot of texture and nuance and different facts to the point where i don't use the term kool-aid um because i i find it very disrespectful to people who died and people who lost loved ones as an as an effect of that tragedy um you know it's something that i we used to joke about and certainly people joke about that with cults and and for anything for, you know, like trends and things like that. But I was like, oh, wow, that really puts a different spin on it. And it made me think so. So let me let me ask you this. That that being said about documentaries of points of view, the other thing I agree on is. I think people have a responsibility for what they choose to do, what behaviors they choose to engage in that I agree we are sort of the narrative around this has been a totally black and white thing. Like either you're a victim or you're a perpetrator. And for someone like the, the actress who's the subject of seduced, as you point out, she is guilty of all the same things that Alison Mack is guilty of, for example, of owning mm -hmm. her own slaves and what have you. So I guess, I guess maybe where we disagree and tell me if I'm right about this or not, but I think some people have, when I look at cults and I still do use that term and, uh, when I look at them, it's it's like I think I think it's possible for people to be manipulated by a person or by a movement, in my case, a movement, and to believe sometimes uh, just things that that are in in when I look at social justice as a cult, for example, they they got us to believe things in, in escalating like bite-sized portions. It would start off with um, I'm going to get you to accept this new definition of racism, sexism. Okay. Now that you've done that, now it's possible to get you to believe that it's impossible to be sexist towards a certain sex or racist towards a certain race. Okay. Now we can get you to this next plateau. And so it was sort of uh, like the, like the boiling frog. They, they bring people in by degrees Everything, though, that I believed in all of my actions while I was in that, I'm responsible for them. I sometimes see people in comments when I do interviews who 
people who were never in social justice who get really angry that I'm talking about it now critically and sort of say, you know, oh, does she expect a cookie for leaving it? You know, and she did all this harm. What's she doing to fix it? And that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, I agree with you. I think I did harm by pushing this ideology in the world. I take full responsibility for that. At the same time, this ideology captures minds, social justice does, and it captures mm -hmm. the good intent of people. And it it can use that against some people and turn them yeah. into puppets for, for things that they don't really understand or things they don't agree with. That's my, that's the way I think about cults is mm -hmm. I think sometimes they can do the same thing is, and so someone like India, the star of seduced, mm -hmm. for example, she says now, right? Like this wasn't good for her. She was manipulated. She was under duress or what have you. Like I'm, I'm paraphrasing, mm -hmm. but this was all based on fear and she didn't want to do it. Um, is it possible for that to be true? And, 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 but for also that, uh, for it to be true that she still needs to take responsibility for having done it. Do you think she was under, do you think any of these people could have been under duress, even if you weren't like they could have been brainwashed? Well, I think it's, I think it's an important, I think it's an important thing to examine because I would argue that the opposite is true, that there was far more duress to conform to the narrative in the mainstream media. And then what became the government's theory than to be part of a community in upstate New York. You know, people were threatened, um, their reputations were threatened, their family relationships were threatened, uh, their freedom was threatened. So to me, I agree with everything that you're saying, the process of it, and I would apply it to the to the people who are saying Nexium is a cult. I think, I think that's why I say next the Nexium narrative is a psyop because they're literally doing the things that they accuse Nexium of doing, and the tools, everything that we taught was about critical thinking, personal responsibility, you know, having compassion for other people's struggles you know, embracing one another, even if we don't agree, accepting people from different backgrounds, religions, belief systems, and finding ways to work together and and find our, our shared humanity. So to me, I mean, you can call that a cult, I suppose. That's a cult I'd like to be a part of. You know, one one that celebrates our our shared humanity and looks to find our, our commonness in a civilized and respectful way. Um, but I think in terms of the, the coercive nature and what, what you're describing of kind of like bullying people and um, capitalizing off of their sympathy, I believe that's what the narrative has done. Because, of course, no one wants a woman to be taken advantage of or exploited. I don't want that. And... And how dare you question the credibility of that claim? That makes you just as bad as the alleged abuser. So I think actually the people um, who have kind of done the most damage and, and led the charge, I, I think the government is is the biggest and most powerful cult there is, if we want to hey, use that Hey, we term. agree on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Can you talk about the personal impact on your life? Because that's that's yeah. also I would say whatever anyone thinks of Nexium or DOS or your take on it or India's take on it, 
I think it's hard to come away from having heard you, interacted with you without, I, th- I think everyone would have, you're a very brave person. You've, you've stood against what must be an amazing amount of, of personal mischaracterization, hate mail. Like just, can you tell people a little bit about what that's been like for you since this story broke? Yeah. So there's, there's certainly an irony in the fact that I um, came to ESP wanting to become a stronger, braver, um, a person of noble character. And I didn't really know what that meant. I just knew that I read books um, by people or about people who'd done heroic things. And that moved me, that inspired me. I also knew I was, you know, kind of like a, a pretty white girl from Canada who who lucked out in, in acting. And um, I didn't really know how I would ever get an opportunity to be heroic. And I'm not saying I have, but I certainly have had an opportunity to face a type of adversity that under any normal circumstances, someone in my position wouldn't have. And what that's meant has been, I mean, when, uh, after Keith got taken, I mean, first it was just a PR nightmare and, and we naively thought it would pass. You know, like Allison and I were were drafting statements, but then we're like, no, we don't even want to feed into it. Like, let's just ignore it. Let's just we don't even want to validate that these crazy rumors could be true or that we care. And um, maybe that was a mistake uh, because it just it snowballed so out of control. And then when it became a legal issue, then, as you know, everything you say or do. So I had to be extremely careful and basically silent. And uh, what happened was because they used RICO, which was designed for the mafia, it meant that anyone who was loosely associated or friends and part of the community could be named a co-conspirator. And um, a lot of people in the community got subpoenaed. They had to get lawyers. And because I was kind of at the center of it all, I was nuclear. No one would talk to me. So I lost my career, um, you know, my my income opportunities. I lost my friends. I lost my home. Uh, I was being stalked in Clifton Park, New York, you know, whether it was going to the coffee shop or going in and out of my home, people with cameras, neighbors um, being really mean. And so I moved to Brooklyn so that I could work closely with a criminal defense attorney. I, you know, this was not something I planned to run away from. I knew the truth and I was going to help in any way I could with with the investigation, with the trial, if it came to that. And um, I believed I could because I had a lot of information. And I quickly realized that the government was not looking for the truth, that that this was about, you know, power and politics, and they had committed to a conviction. And when the federal government convicts, uh, sorry, commits to a conviction, they will get it. Um, The conviction rate is uh, 97% in this country. I don't believe that means that they're right 97% of the time. I think it means they have infinite resources and there's really little you can do. And if you decide to go to trial, most people don't. Um, Most people negotiate and take plea deals because it's either 
you know, we'll give you the, this very low sentence or you risk um, being penalized for going to trial and and getting some astronomical sentence, which is what happened in our case. So I I started working with an attorney. I couldn't get a job. I I applied to so many, so many places, like I think over a hundred. And that's not not just a like, you know, mass email. I wrote specifically who I was, my unique situation, my unique background and experience, and um nothing. Some I got some interviews, but I felt it was only responsible to be transparent about the situation. And if they Googled me, even though I used my full name, which is Nicole, uh, they still would would find things about sex slavery and and awful things. So it was very hard to get a job. I ended up having a friend who was dating someone who had a cafe and I got a job as a barista making minimum wage that, you know, I was just really grateful. I, I this whole experience has been so humbling and, um, you know, I, I have a lot of compassion for people who face prejudice and who go through adversity. And, um, you know, I think I think the the issue I have with this whole like victimhood culture and, and making it a virtue is that it is it is a remarkable thing or it, it is significant to face adversity. But it it's not just having it that makes you brave or remarkable. It's, it's what you do with it. And, and so I saw it as an opportunity to, to grow, to define myself, to strengthen my weaknesses. I was never a morning person and I was opening a cafe at 5am. Uh, <laughs> you know, like there are a lot of things that I just really tried to not get lost in the amount of fear that I had of, of being arrested, of losing people I love, but to really just take it one day at a time and see what I could learn, how I could grow, how I could survive. You know, I think there were times certainly where I just, I, like I said, I ended up working and then I opened a business with the owner of that cafe and, and I, I just worked all the time and, and that was how I dealt with it. Um, and, and you went off social media for a while too. Yes, I did. So I, I was, I mean, I wasn't the type of, um, actor who like shared much about their personal life. I've always been a fairly private person. I would show, share, you know, like articles or, or puns or, or cute pictures and things like that. But I was never overly personal and I, I never planned to be, I, I always strove to be the type of actor whose work spoke for itself and didn't kind of make a circus out of their personal life. Um, unfortunately I was not able to be successful at that. Uh, but I think there are other reasons and, uh, you know, there, there's definitely a purpose that I found in all of this because I was not aware of the flaws. Um, I don't know if I'd call them flaws in the criminal justice system. I think that it's, it's rotten and it's not an accident. I think that it's it's set up to um, basically convict people. I think it's a political and, and money making scheme. But anyway, just there are a number of things that I just had no idea about and was very sheltered about. And even though I had a I was driven by humanitarian values, like I was always a helping type of person. 
um, I see this as an opportunity to to shine a light on injustices that a lot of the world is not aware of and someone in my position typically wouldn't be. Can can we can we dive in a little bit to this? You said you don't use the word Kool-Aid because it's disrespectful to the uh, Jim Jones people. And you also said you don't use, I think you said you don't use the word cult. You don't like to use the word cult. Is that correct? Typically. I mean, I, I don't, I probably have used it or, or jokingly, but yeah, I, especially I if I don't know enough about a group. Mm -hmm. Something I'm particularly interested in is the word brainwashed and I don't like it. Um, and I don't like it because I can't define it. And I hate when I can't define something, I don't want to use it because I don't know what I mean. Um, on the one hand, I can say anyone who has irrational beliefs is brainwashed. But I would have to like, because my belief system is shared children. by very few people, I would <laughs> all be like, children are brainwashed. you're all brainwashed, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. whatever, right? Uh, we, could, we could limit it to like your brain is developed to the age of 25 or sure. whatever, but does it, yeah. e either way, right? I would have to dismiss most people in the entire on the entire planet as being brainwashed because they have beliefs that I think are irrational. Um, and there's this Manchurian candidate kind of uh, archetype of like, you've been programmed and you will hear the, mm. you know, someone mm -hmm. says mashed potatoes and you'll pick up the fork and kill the president of Paraguay or what? I was like, okay, like that's clearly some kind of, mm -hmm. I don't know that that actually exists in real life at all. I, I don't think it does. Um, but that I might be able to say, okay, there's something wrong there. But everywhere in between that, I view this as people are conflating manipulation and pressure and weak will with aid with 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 um, force. So there, it's like, well, we were forced to do this. It's like, well, you weren't forced. How? You chose to do this. This was right. someone made arguments. I thought they were horrible arguments, but you seem to be duped by them. Like, do you have the agency to be duped? Yes. Do I want to call you brainwashed? I don't know what it means to call you brainwashed. Can you talk about like, do you call anyone brainwashed? Is there a cult where you would say people are brainwashed in this group and there's something wrong and this is how you draw the dividing line between brainwashed and just wrong? No, I think the term brainwashed is is lazy. I think that anytime we don't understand why someone thinks the way they do or chooses the way we do, and it feels maybe threatening to our worldview, it's easy to say, well, they're, they're just brainwashed, as opposed to seeking to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And because everyone has a reason, everyone has their own motivation and understanding of reality that would lead them to do what they do. And if I were in their shoes with their upbringing, their values, their fears, you know, experiences, I would probably choose the same thing. So I think it, it, it doesn't, it does us a disservice to use vague language like brainwashing that is not only, um, yeah, I think inaccurate, but derogatory. Like it, it's that's not a good thing to be, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, and I also well, it, think it's it's something that's unique to a certain demographic. Like, because I've thought about trying to compare to different things, and I don't, I don't like to make certain types of comparisons because it it then might. Um, lead people to believe that I think there's a similarity, but I'll, I'll, I'll have faith that 
that the listeners can understand the point I'm trying to make. But like there's gangs and people join gangs um, for a lot of reasons. Uh, a lot of times people don't have a sense of belonging or or ways to earn resources or they are afraid of physical threat or violence if they don't, don't join a gang. Or they would have um, romanticized idea of what it is or, or different things. And um, as part of a gang, they may then do, do criminal acts under coercion, you know, be coerced to do criminal acts. And, and I'm talking about real coercion. Like if you don't rob this person or, or, you know, kill this person, then you will be killed. Like that, that's, that's actual real coercion. actual coercion. We don't call those people brainwashed. They don't get to go to trial and say, oh, I was brainwashed. Mm -hmm. We don't we don't look at them as uh, infantilized victims of their circumstance. I think there's an argument to be made that they are victims of their circumstance insofar as they were influenced by it. They they lacked opportunity, resources. Um, good parenting, you know, things like that, that anyone else in that situation might be susceptible to the same things. It's not that they were born bad. So certainly they had yeah. they, they had less agency than someone who is uh, the daughter Privileged, of a royal white. Who, who grew up in L.A., right? Like, OK, that's uh, that's a lot of. Yeah. It depends. It depends. It's almost it's almost dependent on if they if they agree to once it reaches like if there are criminal charges, then if they choose to say I was brainwashed, uh, then they can cut a deal and they can testify. Because I mean, look at the look at a, an extreme example. You're talking about gangs, but look at a something we refer to as a cult in in our culture, the the Manson family one of the defendants or one of the people who was at the Tate house said she was brainwashed and mm -hmm. she testified for the right, prosecution. But these are white people. That's the, dis that's the point I'm making. Uh, these, these are privileged white people. Yeah. I, I was going to say, you're flirting with this. Let's just go there. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think you're saying white women, there's a, there's yeah. a, I think in particular, there's yeah. a desire by society to white knight white mm -hmm. women yes. who throw their hands up and say, ah, I was brainwashed. I had no agent. I was manipulated. Right. Mm -hmm. And everyone wants to rescue the princess and mm -hmm. say, well, you were manipulated. How dare that bad man manipulate you? Is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And, right. and the reason they know we were manipulated is because we were doing things that either they didn't understand or that threatened their role as a white knight. Because in right. DOS, we were building uh, self-reliance, independence, strength, character, honor, all things that threaten that dependency on men. Well, even if someone's doing something like, there's certainly been guys in my life who've made really stupid decisions that I know that have guy friends sure. that are just like, dude, you're just a moron. You should not have done that, right? Um, and if he, I think if he stood up and said to his friends, I was manipulated and blah, 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 like he would get smacked. Or like, like no one would care. Like, what do you mean you're manipulated? But if he were a young, attractive white female, he might get a lot more sympathy for the yeah, exact same and, uh, bad decisions, probably even if they're bad decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 You, Carter, you tend to, it strikes me that you tend to have less 
maybe empathy is not the right word, but uh, less of a forgiveness for people who do things uh, because as a result of weak will, what you called weak will. It's or, not forgiveness because they didn't wrong right. me. But I do have, I reserve, I think weapon, I think empathy has been weaponized. Um, and it's been weaponized to get people to make irrational decisions that are harmful to other people in the long run, or sometimes in the short run. Um, it's used to make bad laws, uh, pr- uh, pr- uh, prom- promulgate bad ideology. Like it's weaponized empathy is used, and it's and it's used all the time. And so I can say I empathize with the bad decision. I get that your life sucks. You made bad decisions. I might even be willing to help you if you honestly right. want to crawl out of these yeah. bad decisions and do something else. I might be willing to help you. I'm not willing to tell you that it's your that it's not your fault. I'm not willing to tell you that it, you're 100% the victim. You have agency. You made bad decisions. They, they led to X, Y, and Z. They were your bad decisions. It doesn't mean I don't have empathy for you as a human. In fact, I would argue the more empathetic thing to do is to stop enabling them and to say, look, you have agency. You've got however many years left on the earth. If you don't figure that out at some point, it's going to bite you in the ass again. Figure it out now. Like that, it's not yeah. empathetic to say like I, I believe that you are an agentless like blob of jelly that needs to be saved. Like no, that only I, feels good in the moment. I actually agree. I don't disagree with anything that you said. And I like I said before, okay. I think people. I think people do. You're not arguing with me. You might be getting passionate because you are arguing with some faceless person who well no i mean i think i think I, the narrative in the no, show is the that notion, i have less empathy right so right no but but just to finish my thought here, here's so for example i think people who if i look at what's happening in the western world right now people on mass are manipulated and i would use that lazy word have been brainwashed but that you're right i agree that's a lazy word but i think they've been there's a type of persuasion and propaganda that's being used to get people to willingly give up their rights and, and to enforce authoritarianism on their neighbors. And when we look back at this in history, I hope those people are going to be saying, well, cause they will have come around. Well, mm-hmm. you know, at the time it's what we, and, and I will disagree with them. I will say, but you had personal agency and you went along with this willingly and you willingly were saying my neighbor shouldn't be able to go to work because I'm afraid I might catch something if he goes to work. Um, you were part of it and you have responsibility for that. But at the same time, I guess maybe I do understand what that's like to be seduced. Oh gosh, I had used the word of her show. You used uh, the word. Be, <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> That is a marketing you. win, Carrie. That is a right. marketing win. <laughs> I do have, I don't know what, I don't know what the right word is, but I, I do understand people being swept up in something. And as we've talked about before, I don't think it, it's not an IQ thing. I mean, look at Heaven's no. Gate. I view that as a cult and Heaven's Gate, mm-hmm. they're very intelligent people, high IQ that were in Heaven's Gate. And, and I think there's a lot of high IQ people and social justice. And I think there's a lot of high IQ people who are being swept up right now in, in this movement that's just just taken over towards collectivism and away from individualism. So I guess to bring it back to some of the issues we talk about on Unsafe Space, like um, what, what is that line between empathy and understanding? And maybe you've already t- explained it, but and, and also saying you still have responsibility for 
anything that you choose to do. You're not, you're not a person, you're not a victim without agency. Well, I think there, there are two, two um, parts of this because, you know, there was a point when I was questioning everything, you know, and I would, I, I didn't have access to the information that I have had since and was like, what if I'm wrong? You know, what if, even though I benefited tremendously from the tools, I think I'm a stronger, smarter person. And I, and I, and I like who I've become through this journey. Maybe it wasn't what I thought. Maybe Keith isn't who I thought. Where does that leave me? And never once did I view myself as a victim. I viewed myself as someone who made choices based on what I thought was true. And now I'm getting new information that that wasn't the case. And maybe going forward, I will be more um, skeptical. I will do more due diligence. I will be, I don't know if I'll be less trusting because at the end of the day, you can't know. And one of the hugest gifts that I think I've gained through all of this, you, you would think that the amount of trail I've experienced, I would trust no one, but it's actually the opposite because I've come away from this recognizing that no matter what anyone does, I have myself. So I can trust someone and be totally wrong. And I know that I'll be okay, that I'll be able to adapt to that information and adapt the relationship and move forward with my head held high. Now, the thing about our situation that's a little bit different is that no one has bothered to really investigate whether there was actual damage at the time. All of the accusations were months after the fact and retroactively painted. Even India, for a year after the arrest, was fine and communicated as such. And her story was very different than the story that is now being told. So I think it should at least inspire further inquiry. Uh, I think she says in the show that it took 50 therapy sessions to realize she'd been abused. To me, that's problematic. If someone is, um, my experience of the women in DOS, not only are they were educated, privileged, independent, not financially dependent on anyone, um, smart, capable people. We, we actually had criteria for people we would invite that they had a certain level of cognitive capacity of IQ of empathy even. And uh, again, all of those things, I think lots of room for improvement. I'm not saying it's going to happen again, but like, you know, there there was lots of room for um, us to have done a better job. But these were women who were smart, capable, resourceful women. And my experience viewing how they behaved uh, throughout DOS was that they thrived, was that they owned their decisions more. They followed through on their commitments more. They were a more genuine expression of themselves. And that doesn't mean it wasn't hard. It wasn't uncomfortable what we were doing at times. Nothing that much more uncomfortable than people who do CrossFit or Tough Mudder, you know, like I can't even do that. But you know, we were trying to build strength and honor and traits that aren't typically uh, embraced for women or encouraged even. And um, so it it 
it really is, um, I think, like I said, it should be important what people do and say and what happen what happens in reality at the time versus what they say they were thinking and feeling and experienced months later after they've been threatened by the government, disowned by their families, uh, humiliated in the media. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, to me, those are relevant factors. It kind of reminds me of what you said earlier about even if you think that he's a he's a bad boyfriend or like sure. he's a, a bad mm-hmm. guy, or even if you think he's a narcissist, presumably or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that the people didn't have any agency who chose to interact with him in certain ways. And it, it also makes me think a little bit about the way I look at some of the allegations against like the allegations against Aziz Ansari and that whole story that came out yeah. about him, which basically was, so you went on a date with him and didn't like it. And then yeah. you wrote this thing about him aggressing against you somehow. And it's not true. Like you, you chose, there was nothing yeah. about that story where, you know, you had agency. He And mm-hmm. if every word of that story about Aziz was true, yeah, it sounds like a shitty date and mm-hmm. a, a horribly self-obsessed person. Um, but you, he didn't take it. He didn't you 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 weren't how could he have known like how how could he have known right that you were thinking and feeling the opposite of what you were communicating and i i think i i just want to say something quickly because i think i think it relates to your your actual question about empathy Mm -hmm. i have a lot of empathy for women or anyone but i think women especially uh struggle to set boundaries Uh, in relationships, right? And be direct about what they want and how they feel and sometimes don't even know. And that's an experience I have had a lot. And it's actually something that uh, ESP helped me with a lot. But, you know, I've had experiences in Hollywood where I was in situations with men in positions of power where I felt pressured or uncomfortable or vulnerable or like if I said no then what would it cost me and right all kinds of things so I 100% empathize with that struggle my contention is that instead of debilitating ourselves as women and blaming men for it we need to support one another to build the strength and the self-awareness to figure out why do we feel so afraid what is going on that we feel like we can't express ourselves how do we actually promote these um interactions i mean i was sitting on set i had a guest star on a show reading lolita okay like (laughs) (laughs) you know in hindsight i'm like oh god you know what what was i putting out there and uh i just think it doesn't it doesn't serve us to make anyone or anything bad. We're on this planet together. We have strengths and weaknesses. Men abuse power. Women abuse power. How are we going to figure out how to be better together? I really don't think the answer is by is by demonizing men and infantilizing women. I agree with you there. I mean, um, one of the things that's, that strikes me about this entire, not just conversation, but the, the shows and the coverage of all this is 
I don't mean any disrespect, but I don't want to care. I don't know any of you. These are your own life choices. I'm shocked. Like you're off doing your thing. I'm like, who? Like I didn't even finish watching. I didn't even watch the vow because I was like, this is boring. Yeah, I I was riveted. I got HBO Go so I could finish it. I guess I I guess my point I'm not my point's not to be rude, but my my point is people complaining about choices they made i don't know yeah it's like here's some people who made some choices that you may or may not be shocked by who got themselves in some of them seem i mean in the shows they don't have really anyone who likes it but whatever they they seem to now they they don't like where things went and and we think this is a bad guy and it's like i i just i i'm not i i guess the thing that's that's most concerning to me is why that is something that we all we've, we're all some sort of voyeurs or busybodies where we feel like we all have to now look at this. We all have to rush in and save India or whomever, mm-hmm. right? We all have to save these people from themselves. We've got to because they were brainwashed, or because they're being manipulated, or because such and such is a bad guy. We've got to make sure that the government can the government can use actual force to go in and do all this stuff. And um, I don't know. I, to me, there's something the broken one of the one of the evidences that society is broken is that we that this is a story beyond with your immediate friends and family who think mm-hmm. you're making bad decisions. I agree. And I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that we don't have healthy ways to work out our um, compulsions, our, our differences, our uh, what motivates us to get in situations where that we regret. And so by v- being a voyeur in, in another person's journey through this, we sort of, it's like schadenfreude, like, well, at least I didn't join a cult or I see like what the red flags are <laughs> that, um, you know, that I would have avoided or that I can know for next time. Or I feel some, you know, I think most people have had, interactions if not intimate relationships with let's say a narcissist you know so they're like there's some sense of catharsis by like oh yeah i experienced that and and so they feel less less alone i to me the biggest problem in addition to our society's satiation in in this story is the fact that we can demonize someone in the media with no evidence to the point where no one cares whether he gets a fair trial. So the idea of innocent until proven guilty of due process is is a is a myth. I mean, that's my honest opinion. That's what I've observed. Keith was convicted in the court of public opinion way before he ever stepped into a courtroom and by then it, it, it was a done deal. There was no one, first of all, who probably could have escaped the headlines and and then the the evidence that was brought into trial that had nothing to do with the charges like nothing um but it was all just to make him look like a bad boyfriend a bad guy must have had bad intent i don't know what the charges are or what they mean but you know it's not cool with me a number of people on the jury were devout muslims like just even the fact that he had multiple relationships you know not to mention that they were with adult consenting women, but that doesn't matter. It's weird. It's outside the norm. I, I don't like it. So it doesn't really matter what the charges are, or what needs to be proven to to convict someone. He's clearly a bad guy. So 
I think the fact that we can do that with people in our society that we call civilized should be very concerning. I think people should care. And that's really my mission. I don't benefit from taking this stance. I don't, uh, it's very difficult, you know, to be standing for what I'm standing for, which I want to make very clear. I am not trying to promote Keith. That I, I don't, I hope that's not, you know, what people think or what, what I get across. I, I don't really speak about my personal relationship or what I think of him personally, because it's irrelevant. You know, it's not up to the public to decide who I have personal relationships with, but it should concern the public that we are willing to subvert due process as long as someone is hated. And if you do it to the most hated man in America, why not do it to the second most hated, the third? And now it's just someone I don't like and I want them to be in prison. That's really where we're headed if we're not there already. Oh, I think you're right. I think we're at the point where a lot of people, when when asked about Keith, would say, well, he's creepy. I don't like him. He should be in jail. Right. They don't. They and don't what's care creepy? Speaking him. of vague language. Right, yeah. That, that's why like, I'm using that language. That's yeah. what they would say. He's creepy. I don't exactly. like him. He should be in jail. The end. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, and and I think <laughs> I think make you're t-shirt. right. That's creepy is not a crime. Right. There's a there's a I just read an interesting essay, by the way, just as a non sequitur. It's well, it's related. Uh, there's an essay by John Hasnas, I think is his name. It's it's one of the last essays in Michael Malice's Anarchist Handbook. But it's about how law is never objective. Um, and it's mm. a fascinating read because oh, wow. I had always thought of this ideal of, well, we need an objective law. Yeah. Uh, we need And we need law applied objectively. And yeah. he's kind of convinced me that that's never, ever, ever possible. Yeah. Um, and it's it. But well, so long as there yeah. are no checks and balances and it relies on humans to police themselves, you know, and it's it's fascinating to me that judges can sit on the bench for so many years that there's not any type of ethics training or um, psychological kind of understanding that they must undergo like you can go through law school and i don't mean this in a derogatory way i mean it in a clinical way like you can be a psychopath and and you know pass with flying colors and and become a prosecutor and get promoted and win and become a judge like that's scary the fact that there's uh, there's no accountability you could be a psychologist and be a psychopath and be in charge of diagnosing other people. <laughs> like true. That's, that's, uh, yeah. you know, you're making me think of, I, I was wondering your take on this other case, um, that was in the news in the past couple of years. When was this 2017? I don't know if you remember this. This is the woman, Michelle Carter, who was found guilty of coercing her boyfriend to kill himself. Mm-hmm. Do you, are you familiar with this case at all? Not really. Uh, it it sort of rings a bell, but um, it just it's another one. It. I you know since you're not familiar, with it, we don't have to talk about it. But it was through a series of you know text messages and things she was telling him, and then he ended up committing suicide. Wow! And she was found guilty of coercing him. And I think it's wow. one of those cases where you're saying Carter, the law is not objective. 
it's, well, I mean, it's, clearly she's it's a jerk. Human. Is yeah. That, should that be illegal? <laughs> like, yeah. Where's the personal agency? I don't know. It's hard for me to answer. Mm-hmm. For me, yeah. it's hard for me to answer if she's criminally guilty of something or not. Um, well, you I know me. I'm a big into ostracizing. Yeah, I'm big into ostracizing instead of criminality so like yeah I, and feather. I would ostracize her i would be like i don't want anything to do with her if i was i wouldn't want to mm-hmm. be friends with her i wouldn't want to like i wouldn't want her around i think she's a bad person mm-hmm. i don't think spending money to put her in jail for a number of years is super helpful for anyone right um but it, yeah that, that's an important yeah. conversation yeah. that i have a lot to say about uh <laughs> prison but but yeah we don't have to have that now. well actually wait if you do have a lot to say about prison because i've just been getting into this restorative justice thing which i've just started to learn about so i would like to hear what mm-hmm. your thoughts are on uh prison because this is an example i th- i think and i don't know if all three of us agree on this but i think this the the keith stuff is an example of a guy people don't like who did things that some people think are morally reprehensible but not really illegal, who's now in jail. Um, mm-hmm. So, With one caveat. Oh, okay. We never talked about this, but it was alleged that some of his sexual relationships were with underage women. Mm-hmm. And it, I, don't know if, I don't know if they proved that or not, but if they were, that's I don't think illegal. that was proved, though. though well, there, yeah, there were no uh, criminal allegations of that. The one charge that was really a linchpin in this entire thing and was was brought about very shortly before trial. And until that point, the co-defendants had not taken plea deals yet. As far as I know, uh, everyone was planning to go to trial, to fight this, to, to fight for the truth. And it wasn't until they introduced a child pornography charge under the racketeering um, that they started taking deals. Because most crimes um, are are there's gray areas it depends on intent it depends on context and because we are dealing with all uh, you know adults with kind of he said she said type stories um that was going to be a certain type of thing you cannot argue with child porn right now what you can argue with which is something that has been discovered since the trial ended is that the the hard drive that allegedly contained these photos was actually tampered with while in FBI custody. And the FBI agent who actually took the stand to speak about these alleged photos of someone who was allegedly underage um, actually said that the drive was accessed while in FBI custody and that the chain of custody was broken. Now, that wasn't challenged. It should have been thrown out, in my opinion. But again, there was just so much prejudice and the judge was... Honestly, he might he he was basically a prosecutor in robes. He he was helping the prosecution left, right, and center. But forensically, it has since been proven uh, and confirmed by former FBI and and different people that these photos were actually planted. So that's something was that has Keith's not drive. Been, I don't know this part of the story. Well, that's the thing is that it was a drive that was allegedly found at an apartment that he stayed in. So even the, okay. the I mean, it, and it, it was a drive that hadn't been asked, accessed since 2010. They tried to say that it had backed up a computer, but the, the set of files that the supposed photos were in were not conducive to a backup. Like there were two other backups on the drive. So there's a lot of technical aspects. But one of the important things is that the file names is what they used to prove 
that the woman in the photos uh, was underage. And they made the file names look as though they were organically created, like auto-generated um, because of when they were taken. But it's since been recognized that they were actually manually entered. So they're not a reliable source of that uh, data. Okay. So I, anyway, so that's an issue. Rabbit, rabbit holes, that's fine. With, I with didn't realize that stuff, aspect but of it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, cause that, that really was the most prejudicial inflammatory charge, uh, in terms of prison, uh, I, I began my research into the American prison system when, when I thought it could be something that I would face. And I was alarmed, deeply alarmed at, at the state of things and, and what goes on, how, how people end up there and then how they're treated when they're there, I ended up starting a movement with some friends where we danced and provided entertainment outside of federal prison in Brooklyn, New York. And it's so sad, really, but also surreal. Again, how the media treated this, they would like we wanted to get attention on what was happening at the prison because they'd been on almost 24 seven lockdown since COVID started. Horrible conditions. Basically, you're locked in a bathroom with another man, no fresh air, no sunlight, just locked in a bathroom, getting like frozen dinners every day. And uh, this had been going on for months. And so we went outside and and I actually started dancing um, one night and they like knocked on the windows and flashed their lights and showed a very positive response. And I was like, wow, this this is probably one of the first novel connections or um, experiences they've they've seen another human have in a really long time, which is so it's like those little nuggets of humanity that that can be so significant. So I'm like, OK, let's I brought more friends. We set up speakers and lights and put on a whole show outside. And it, to the point where like we drive up and they'd start knocking on the windows and we wanted to get media so that they could know that more people could come, bring families with loved ones inside or whoever wanted to, you know, join the cause and to bring attention to what was going on inside because it was, in my opinion, inhumane. Uh, what happened was, you know, the New York Post showed up, the, the New York Daily News, and they're like, cult members dance for their leader outside prison and i did see that yeah, yeah. <laughs> so fake news um they actually because keith was um expressed his support for what we were doing he sent an email saying um it's awesome like it's really boosting morale inside like you should definitely keep doing it he got moved to a cell where he couldn't see three days in so we came back for three weeks every night then we were like okay we this isn't sustainable. Uh, so and then we came back every Friday for six months and we connected with families. Uh, we created a phone number so that the guys inside could call and tell, find out who we were and what we were doing and, and tell their friends and family to join us. We set up an in Instagram and a website and it's still up. And um, I still talk to many people um, who were at MDC or some that still are, some that have moved, some that have been released, just trying to help. You know, I, I offer sometimes just like friendship. Sometimes I help them 
mail things or research things or get messages to family members who don't pick up the phone or or lawyers or, or things like that because I just recognize they're in in such vulnerable positions and and really some of them have no support some of them do and that's in some ways just as heartbreaking they have families at home who love them and would welcome them and support them and they can't be with them and then some people literally have no one so it's been a very moving experience for me to be able to help in that way to feel a little less helpless in my own situation you know <laughs> um and uh and learn learn just the the horrific state of things yeah i don't know how much longer do we have you because I mean, <laughs> I've, I've got a there's definitely think, stuff that we could go down hours of I, rabbit holes with you I, so i think we should wrap up soon only because my brain after two hours as you know I get no i get i guess i get like that too yeah <laughs> for sure uh, Later, I'll I'm, be like, what did I say again? <laughs> did that make sense? <laughs> but you People know, will take yeah. clips from the end when you're spacey and be like, exactly. <laughs> I'm also starting to sweat a little bit. I need to turn yeah. the AC back on. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, though. I, I know we had to, and I, I'm so grateful you came here to have this conversation with us. And I knew we had to start from this conversation because this is what people want to know about right now about you. And this is what I was, how I discovered you online was uh, through this story. And I'm, I'm one of the people who was fascinated by the, by the programs. And, um, but I hope that we get to talk about other things in the future, because I don't, at the end of the day, I know we're going to have some viewers who are like, Oh, you're too easy on her. And I know we're going to have other viewers who are like, Oh, you were too hard on her. And it, and uh, I just, at the end of the day, I can have a disagreement with you and I can think you're wrong about certain things maybe. And, but I also know that I could, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. And, and I like you and I think you have a like very strong uh, character and I think you have a, a, a really sharp mind and I would love to talk to you about other things in the future. We don't always have to talk about the Nikki Klein was in a sex cult story. Actually, I do have some uh, sexuality questions on the list. So oh, yeah, that'll I be know. A... <laughs> we can get to those. We, will, yeah. I, I, we, can, we can get to that another time. But, um, Probably make me yeah. blush, to be honest. <laughs> well, um, yeah, it's, it's all good. It's been a pleasure, pleasure to speak with you, Nikki. Really appreciate your time. Um, can you remind people how they can follow you? find you online generally, support you, or just read more about what you have to say? Absolutely. So uh, I would say I'm the most active in terms of social media presence on Twitter. Uh, I also have an Instagram. It's just my name, Nikki Klein, spelled C-L-Y-N-E, which is Scottish, in case people didn't know. Um, I also set up a locals, Nikki Klein. Is it? Yeah, NikkiKlein.locals.com, where I will be... Uh, and have been putting out written content, video content, and uh, we'll be doing much more. I plan to create a YouTube channel as well to to start putting things out. I, I, I want to say, I mean, I don't know what people will think about your questions, easy or hard. The most meaningful thing for me and what I feel that you've done successfully is you've been uh, respectful and human. So I just want to thank you for that. 
I, I don't think most people realize their own prejudices and how much they they buy into the narrative without even realizing it and ask questions that I understand where they're coming from, but um, they can be pretty presumptuous and disrespectful. So it's it's been difficult to navigate and whether to just answer them because I really have nothing to hide or to or to address it in the moment, which sometimes makes people self-conscious. But I don't feel like in any way, shape or form have I had to even consider that here. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I love what you guys do and what you stand for. And I, I'd love to talk more. Cool. Well, I'm going to have to scratch off my question here. Why are you such a horrible person? So what was that? <laughs> That'll be for next time, I guess. <laughs> now you've said all those nice things that, you know, I can't ask that one. That was the first interview you ever did with me. Harry, why yeah. were you so <laughs> Why, yeah, why are you so horrible? Um, <laughs> all right, well, look, Nikki, thank you very much for joining. We will have you back. Um, it's been a awesome. pleasure. Likewise. Cool. Thank you, Bye, guys. Bye, Carter. Thank you. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms. Well, mostly. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. The following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and may be subject to federal entrapment. Research shows that wearing a mask significantly reduces the risk of becoming infected with independent thought. The next war will be nothing like Afghanistan. I promise. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't think about it, I mean, that's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice, Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake. <laughs>